Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash CNN for a $1 per month trial. Hey everyone, I'm David Chalian, CNN's political director, and welcome to the CNN Political Briefing. Donald Trump is the all but certain Republican Party nominee for 2024, and he is a unique one at that. The former president is splitting his time between the campaign trail and the courtroom. He's facing multiple ongoing legal battles. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments in a case that could decide whether he's even eligible to be on the 2024 ballot. This question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it, it sounds awfully national to me. This came after a federal appeals court ruled earlier in the week that Donald Trump is not immune from being prosecuted for attempting to reverse the 2020 election results. And I should note, we are recording this conversation on Wednesday, the day before the Supreme Court oral arguments. Joining me now to explain the implications of these cases that could have huge impact on the 2024 election is Joan Biskupic, CNN's senior Supreme Court analyst. Joan, thank you so much for being here. It's so good to be here, David. Obviously, there's nothing that gets your blood going like a big Supreme Court oral argument, one that will have impact on potentially the outcome of a presidential race. I am so psyched. <laughs> I, I keep going back to Bush v. Gore. I keep going back to Obamacare. I keep going back to wonderful big court cases I have known. So is this 14th Amendment case one of those cases? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because David, it's going to determine whether Donald Trump stays on the ballot and it can potentially affect who becomes the next president of the United States. So it's definitely in that big category. Now, I remember back over the summer, Judge Ludig put out his piece in The Atlantic, I think with Lawrence Tribe. And there was a lot of like, is this really a mainstream legal theory or not? Is this sort of outside the mainstream? But it seemed pretty clear early on this would eventually have to be resolved by the Supreme Court. That's right. In fact, it didn't have early momentum because it was so out of the main. Face it, we're dealing with a post-Civil War amendment written to keep former leaders of the Confederacy from coming back and holding office. So, you know, who would think that would apply yeah, in 2024? Relevance. Exactly, exactly. And at some point, I do want to read the words for our audience so they know exactly. Do, do, what's so, part. do so. Yeah, because this is so, you know, let me just say the reason I think our audience would like to hear it is because the nine justices will be staring at this for the next couple of weeks as they resolve their opinion. Section three of the 14th Amendment says, and I've got a couple of ellipses in here, but it's still a mouthful. No person shall hold any office under the United States who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States, that's an important phrase, to support the Constitution, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion. What it's saying is anybody who is found to have engaged in an insurrection, who once was an office holder, who took an oath, can't hold future office. Now, the reason I emphasized an officer of the United States, and referred to the hold any office, because those are exactly the terms that the justices are going to parse. Is the president of the United States an officer of the United States? David, it's so counterintuitive to think that he would not be an officer of the United States. But what Trump's lawyers are arguing is that under the terminology of the Constitution, 
throughout the Constitution as a document, the presidency has not been included as a, quote, officer. Officer of the United States refers only to appointed officials, and it does not encompass elected individuals, such as the president or members of Congress. Now, I, again, that sounds counterintuitive, but a Colorado trial judge who ruled that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection also said that Section 3 does not apply to him because he is not, per the terms of the Constitution, an officer of the United States. Now, the Colorado Supreme Court reversed that. Do the justices look back at the framers' intent in writing this as they grapple with it? Yes. In fact, more so than ever. Back in, you know, the old fond days of Bush v. Gore and earlier, we didn't have as many textualists or originalists on the court. Now, the majority says we have to look specifically at the original understanding of provision. For this one, again, it goes back to right after the Civil War and what they are going to be trying to figure out as they craft their opinions, you know, and hopefully we have a good, solid decision that has a strong majority behind it, is exactly what was meant by this provision. And is Donald Trump covered to the extent that he can be on a ballot or off the ballot? So that's one piece of it. My other question is the one that you just raised about what a Colorado court already determined was that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist. Do the justices need to deal with that issue or that's not going to be before them? Okay, it will be before them this way. The Colorado voters who have brought this challenge and want Donald Trump off the ballot, they are trying precisely to put these nine justices' attention on that part of the phrase shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion, saying Donald Trump indeed did engage in an insurrection. Chief Justice John Roberts and some of the conservatives might not really want to go there. They might not want to get to the point of whether Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection. That's why I highlighted some of the terminology that comes before it that could be off ramps, so to speak, for the justices. But the Colorado voters lawyer, a man by the name of Jason Murray, in his written briefs and likely as he speaks to the justices, will try to focus the, them as much as possible on the events of January 6th. And there is something that they wrote in their brief that I think is so compelling right at the top that I expect will be at the front of some of the justices' minds. The most violent attack on our nation's capital since the War of 1812, an attack which obstructed the peaceful transfer of presidential power for the first time in American history, meets any plausible definition of insurrection against the Constitution. For the first time in history, the attack was incited by a sitting president of the United States to disrupt the peaceful transfer of presidential power. By engaging in insurrection against the Constitution, President Trump disqualified himself from public office. That's the challenger's position. Okay. Just remind me of the rules of the road here for oral argument. How long does each side have to make their argument? And who are we going to be hearing from in the oral argument? Okay. It's scheduled for a total of 80 minutes. Do not set your watch by this. It will go at least twice as long, trust me, based on past patterns. We'll hear first from a man by the name of Jonathan Mitchell, who actually is well known to the justices. He's representing Donald Trump. Jonathan Mitchell is a former clerk to the late Justice Antonin Scalia, the conservative icon, the patron saint of textualism and originalism. Jonathan Mitchell, also is a former Texas Solicitor General, 
who more recently is known to the justices as the brains behind SB8, that Texas law that banned abortion and made it, it made it virtually impossible to challenge before a court. And uh, Justice Elena Kagan, during that dispute over the Texas abortion ban, referred to, quote, some geniuses who developed this legislation. And that's Jonathan Mitchell. Wow. And so you say it'll go longer. Is that because you anticipate the justices are going to be engaging in intense questioning? Oh, yes, because there's so many legal issues. And just I want to mention the other main lawyer who will speak Please to the court, the, a, a man by the name of Jason uh, Murray, who's never argued before the court before, but he is a former law clerk to Justice Elena Kagan, and he was a law clerk to Neil Gorsuch when Neil Gorsuch was on a Denver-based U.S. appellate court. Back to your question about why will this go long? It's because there are so many legal issues, and typically, David, the justices will focus what's known as the question presented. In this case, they never focused it. They just essentially are saying, did the Colorado Supreme Court get it right or wrong? And if the Colorado Supreme Court, in ruling that Trump should be off the ballot, had even just one small or medium flaw in its opinion, it's reversed. And do we know why Colorado? Why was this the case that came to the court? Because I, throughout the last six months, have seen a ton of headlines state by state. Uh, certain secretaries of state were weighing in on this or certain election boards and determining whether Trump had access to the ballot or not. How did it come to be that the Colorado case ended up? Well, and there were more cases. There were more cases, as you know. The Colorado one was sort of shrewdly developed for a couple of reasons. You know, it's more of a blue state. And it's a state where under its own state election laws, the voters could make these, this challenge. Uh, six Republican and unaffiliated independent voters brought this case. And under Colorado law, they were able to do it. Under several other states, they not, might not have been able to tee it up this way. And interestingly, even though the Colorado Supreme Court ruled for the challengers here, it was a four to three decision. And they're all Democratic appointees on that court. Divided Democrats, apparently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So my last question for you on this case, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I felt as all of these challenges were making their way through all of these states, as this theory was being put forth yeah. that Trump may not be eligible to be on the ballot, that it was largely dismissed or seen as pie in the sky, that my sense of conventional wisdom around this, and I don't speak to as many smart legal experts as you do, obviously, was that this didn't really have legs. But the way you're teeing up this hearing suggests to me that there's more a seriousness to this than perhaps I'm giving it. Okay, two things. It, you're kind of half right and yeah. half wrong. <laughs> uh, first of all, it was seen as, you know, an idea that was cooked up in academia. It started with a, a, an academic paper that was very forcefully argued. But a lot of people thought, no way will this Supreme Court want to take any candidate off the ballot. This Supreme Court would want to leave it to the voters. And that's, you know, that's even before I tell you that there are six Republican appointed justices and three Democratic appointed liberals, which you just cannot ignore that. So it was it was an idea that people didn't think would actually have traction because it might not suit these these justices. The, the trial court in Colorado ruled against it, and it was a narrow win in uh, the state of Colorado. It may still go down. And I think we can acknowledge right now that we're taping this before the arguments, sure. so we could get a different tone from the justices. But I think when we walk out of there, we will have heard the majority of the justices not focus on Donald Trump as an insurrectionist, more on the narrow terms of this 
and ways that they might not have to get to the most consequential question, which would mean that in the end, this was a lot of fun. It's gonna go down in the annals of great cases, but it will in the end fizzle because the justices will not keep Donald Trump off the ballot. Joan Biskupic, stay right there. This is just one of the big legal events this week for Donald Trump. We're gonna get to the other when we come back. Shopify's taking the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing for your retail store? Upgrade your point of sale system with Shopify. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. Get award-winning support and see why millions of businesses worldwide trust Shopify. Do retail right. Grab your $1 trial at shopify.com slash CNN. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash CNN for a $1 per month trial. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We're here with Joan Biskupic, CNN's senior Supreme Court analyst. Joan, there was a hugely consequential opinion, ruling, handed down by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals this week dealing with Donald Trump's claim of total and complete immunity as it relates to the Jack Smith investigation, uh, election interference uh, federal case that Jack Smith is prosecuting. It seemed like almost like an entirely devastating loss for Trump and his team. But take us inside the ruling. What did this court of appeals court say? And is this going to be the last word on this? Ah, first I'll take you inside, and then we're going to have to speculate on whether it's the last word, because the Supreme Court will have a chance to decide what it wants to do here. Okay, first of all, Donald Trump was making a pretty bold, even audacious argument here, saying that as a former president, he should be absolutely immune from criminal prosecution for anything that he did while president. And this all goes to his uh, election subversion. You know, he did not accept the results of the 2020 election. The results validly put Joe Biden in the White House. He kept protesting it, and it culminated, of course, on January 6th with the uh, attack on the Capitol. And Jack Smith, on behalf of the Justice Department, on behalf of the United States, has brought four criminal counts against him, you know, conspiracy to defraud Americans, you know, just all sorts of very serious charges here arising from that. Today... An indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. The charges were brought by a federal grand jury. And as he went to the trial court judge to begin the trial proceedings, Donald Trump claimed, I don't have to go to trial. I am immune from this. The trial judge said, no, you're not immune. You're not above the law and had issued a very smart opinion. And that was what was appealed here to the D.C. Circuit. And I should note Judge Chutkin, the trial judge, right, 
put everything on hold while this appeals process Exactly plays right. Out. Okay. She had scheduled it for March 4th, and now that's not going to happen, but we're not sure when it would be rescheduled for. But let me just tell you about this three-judge panel. It was two Biden appointees and one appointee from 1990 of George H.W. Bush, Judge Henderson, and all three of them joined together on these 57 pages to forcefully reject all of Donald Trump's arguments. They rejected every single ground he had, relied on precedent um, from the Supreme Court that would inform the case. The Supreme Court has never ruled definitively on this particular question of absolute immunity in a criminal case for a president. But here's the kinds of things they said that I think show you the tone of this. For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all the defenses that any other criminal defendant will have. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. This three-judge panel went deep into some of the uh, events of January 6th and said, former President Trump's alleged efforts to remain in power despite losing the 2020 election were, if proven, an unprecedented assault on the structure of our government. So the reason I make a big deal about the three judges being unanimous and so forceful is, you know, sometimes things can be watered down with a concurring opinion. This was not. This was so sound, so thorough. And that's intentional, right? I mean, that is part of the design if they decide to agree to do this unsigned unanimous offering, right? Exactly. There's a message in that. that yeah, the message is we are all in on this. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, this may be such a basic question, but if Donald Trump's argument was correct. Why would Gerald Ford have ever needed to pardon Richard Nixon if he would have been safe from any kind of prosecution? As he, The reason he gave that pardon is because he believed Nixon was indeed vulnerable to prosecution as an ex-president. That's right. And, and that's something that has been a presumption not of the late President Gerald Ford, but of many, many, many people believing that a president who engages in, and these are just alleged, but a president who engages in alleged criminal acts, leaves office, can be prosecuted down the road. Now, I do want to say the Supreme Court has never addressed it squarely, which is why, as it comes up to the Supreme Court now, the Trump team has until Monday, February 12th, to let the Supreme Court know that they will do this. And then likely what the Supreme Court will do is set a kind of a mini briefing schedule just on this discrete question of whether they should even take it up. And the truth is that while some people are saying, oh, of course, they'll never hear it, you just don't know because there could be some justices who feel like this question is of such magnitude, we should have the last word. But there could be some other justices who think, oh, my God, we just went through Thursday's 14th Amendment insurrectionist question on Donald Trump. Do we really want to take this on? The D.C. Circuit panel was so robust and thorough. We can let this sit for now because we're not going to have another question like this coming for a long time. Now, you and I have talked in the hallways here in the Bureau, and you have such insight into John Roberts, obviously the chief justice. But you said right away when these two things were sort of coming barreling down, uh, you said, you know, this is like a made for Roberts kind of trying to have it all. And maybe he would want to somehow pair these things. I don't mean literally pair them. They're two separate cases. But that if he wanted to really make sure that the court weighed in, perhaps against this notion of total immunity, that dealing with the 14th Amendment piece and not kicking him off the ballot could be a, a sweetener to be able to do that. Is that a fair? 
Well, John Roberts is always aware of how the public is going to regard what the court that informally bears his name, the Roberts Court, is doing. And he's aware of its structure and its integrity in the face of a very politicized world. And if they rule that Donald Trump should be on the ballot with the case that was just heard on Thursday, I am certain that there will be language in that that talks about how they are not trying to endorse him in any way. They're not favoring him. And if they want to make sure they're sending a signal that they're truly not favoring the former president, even though they're reversing the Colorado Supreme Court that said he should be off the ballot, they would figure out a way to say uh, Donald Trump cannot be immune from criminal prosecution. Now, that might come again. That's just that's a more atmospheric thing. But that is certainly a John Roberts thing. He's very aware of what signals they're sending. And there's no way he wants to look like a Trump partisan. Is there anything in the appellate court's ruling? that gives credence to any corner of the Trump team's argument for immunity? Because to me, it's so hard to wrap your mind around because it seems to me what Donald Trump's team is arguing before a court is that he is above the law. And the whole concept of our system is that nobody is above the law. And I know this gets confusing for people because there is that Office of Legal Counsel guideline in the Justice Department for serving presidents during their time as president not to be subject to criminal prosecution, right? But we're talking about somebody who has left office and it just seems so counter. And I'm just wondering, was there anything the Trump team put forward that while the court ruled against them might have given them some opening that the Supreme Court might see worthy of picking up on or that we would expect the Trump team to emphasize in their appeal to the Supreme Court? Um, No, but they can still get their attention by saying you should decide it. Even if you're going to rule in the same way, you should still decide it because it's so big. First of all, this D.C. Circuit opinion is so in sync with where the law is. Donald Trump already had a really uphill battle on this one. I mean, he had like no battle. I mean, just based on the law, I'm just trying to you know, objectively yes. let our audience know that it was it was not an argument that any president probably could have succeeded on, uh, least of all somebody who is embroiled in this uh, these criminal allegations. And the D.C. Circuit addressed one of Trump's key claims. If you say that the former president is not immune, you are going to open the floodgates to other presidents being charged. There will be, you know, vendettas. And you know how what the D.C. Circuit said had never happened before? It's unlikely it's going to happen again. There's no evidence. They went back through history and they said, look at the history. Look at the history. There were, you know, 44 prior presidents. None of them, right. you know, were subjected to this kind of prosecution. And they said there's no grounds to think that this will happen for future presidents. And we should note, even despite this loss at the uh, appellate level, the Trump team is actually still making the immunity claim in the classified documents case. In the other Jack Smith case, they're still going through these motions of suggesting that they are immune. That's right. And, and you know what? They might think that, you know, one or two or maybe at least four or five justices on this Supreme Court might be sympathetic to their argument. I don't think so, but that's what they're betting on at this point. Joan Biskupic, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, David. That's it for this week's edition of the CNN Political Briefing. And we want to hear from you. Is there a question you'd like answered about this election cycle? Is there a guest you really want to hear from? Give us a call at 301-842-8338 or send us an email at cnnpoliticalbriefing at gmail.com. 
and you might just be featured on a future episode of the podcast. So don't forget to tell us your name, where you're from, how we can reach you, and if you give us permission to use the recording on the podcast. CNN Political Briefing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Madeline Thompson and Grace Walker. Our senior producer is Haley Thomas. Dan DeZula is our technical director, and Steve Lichtai is executive producer of CNN Audio. Support from Alex Manasseri, Robert Mathers, John Dianora, Lainey Steinhardt, Jameis Andrist, Nicole Pesseru, and Lisa Namoro. And special thanks to Katie Hinman. We'll be back with a new episode on Friday, February 16th. Thanks so much for listening.